The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Hello, welcome to Sportbox. We are live from the London studio and also outside of the Bank of England. Here are your headlines today. The S&P 500 posts its worst day of the month, while short positions on U.S. stocks hit their highest level in over a year. As Fed Chair Jerome Powell tells U.S. lawmakers, the fight against inflation is far from over. We remain committed to bringing inflation back down to our 2% goal. Restoring price stability, again, is essential to set the stage for achieving maximum employment and stable prices over the longer run. Pressure piles on the Bank of England to rein in runaway inflation as a shock inflation print sends two-year gilts to a 15-year high. The Swiss National Bank heeding the lessons from the collapse of Credit Suisse calling for more robust capital buffers and a framework to stabilize or wind down important lenders. Well, that's interesting. We'll hear from the SMB chair later today after the central bank's rate decision. And the U.S. Federal Trade Commission taking aim at Amazon, suing the e-commerce giant and accusing it of duping customers into signing up for its prime service without their consent. Meanwhile, U.S. President Joe Biden welcomes Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi to the White House, serving pasta and ice cream at a private dinner. The two expected to discuss deepening defence and technology ties over coming days. Very good morning. Good morning, Karen. Good morning. Welcome good morning to Jumana at the Bank of England as well. And welcome back to the studio. I know, it's lovely to be here. Yeah. Now, in fact, actually, no, the, I mean, I'll talk very briefly. The, the Ukraine recovery conference is, is absolutely fascinating. I don't know if some of our trading audience um, are as interested, but I think from a geopolitical point of view and from an economic point of view in terms of the destiny of where Russia goes next, where, of course, Ukraine goes next, and where Europe goes in its support for Ukraine. I think it's absolutely fascinating. Now, that will have economic ramifications, which will, again, affect our, our viewers' universe. Yeah, I think everybody's watching the story very closely and the impact on food inflation, which has been a very stubborn category for a lot of traders at this point, the geopolitics that have been worsening since the war began. I think these are big issues for the markets, but, of course, we just get trumped by the monetary policy story day in, day out at this stage. Well, uh, and, and I think your point about food inflation is absolutely the point because the, the policymakers have always said, don't worry about the headline figure. Look at the core. Look at core CPI because that's where it at because it strips out that pesky food and it strips out that pesky fuel, which is so volatile, which also, in my mind, happen to be the most important commodities uh, for any household. But the fact of the matter is, there's a lot else going on, isn't there? It could be about shelter. It can be about lodging. It can be about uh, services. And I think the message is pretty much along those lines from the Fed as well. A long way to go. That is the message on inflation from the Fed Chair Jerome Powell. The central bank chief says he sees more hikes ahead with inflation well above where it should be. Speaking a week after the Federal Open Market Committee officials, that's the FMC to you and I, uh, decided for the first time in more than a year not to push rates higher, Mr Powell indicated that the move was most likely just a brief respite. 
rather than the end of the hiking cycle. Yes, we've all got to get used to these pauses and skips. Pauses and skips, they happen more often historically than you think, ladies and gentlemen. Now, testifying before the US House Services Financial Services Committee, uh, he said current conditions are not normal. Today's situation is unusual in that we are overachieving, in effect, the maximum employment goal, but we are far from achieving the, the uh, inflation goal. When that's the case, you look at how far you are from the goal, and you look at the speed with which you would move back to the goal. And so that would tell you today that we, we should focus heavily on inflation. But as, as it becomes closer, as, as, you know, as, as the two things become more aligned, then, then they go back into perfect equality under the law. Powell also suggested the Fed was close to its terminal rate, but not there just yet. The level to which we raise rates is actually a separate question of the speed with which we move. Earlier in the process, speed was very important. It's not very important now. We were at 75 basis points for several meetings, then we were at 50 basis points, then 50 basis points, 25 basis points at, at three consecutive meetings, and now we're moderating that, that pace, much as you might do if you were to be driving you 75 miles an hour on the highway, then 50 miles an hour on a local highway, and then as you get closer to your destination, as you try to find that destination, you slow down even further. In prepared remarks, Powell said nearly all FOMC participants expect further hikes to be needed this year. But Atlanta Fed President Raphael Bostic has a different view. He's in favor of holding rates for the rest of the year, arguing the Fed should give time for past moves to take effect. Uh, that is the lag effect that we've been talking about on markets, the catch-up uh, that still needs to take place. And we've certainly seen it through the lens of the UK with the rolling over of those fixed-rate loans uh, tipping a lot of mortgage holders back into the loan market at much higher rates now, which, of course, impacts their cost of living at this point. Uh, but to wall straight into the action, we saw stateside on the back of Powell it was a negative read for markets. Investors spooked by the language still. The terminal rate could be within touching distance, but we're just not there yet. Many had hoped the skip or pause or hop would actually lead to a pivot later on this year that we would see some form of a cutting cycle begin. But uh, that is uh, not the language we heard from Jay Powell yesterday. Fairly hawkish in this testimony. And as a result, uh, we saw markets pull back, particularly the tech sector that has been on somewhat of a tear in recent uh, weeks and months. So this is the trade, as you can see, across the board, uh, falls of 2% off Netflix, Alphabet down that much, uh, Tesla, which is actually the real underperformer for the S&P and for the Nasdaq, that was down close to 5.5%. So the momentum stock certainly losing momentum in session yesterday. But uh, more modest falls elsewhere. You could see on Apple down about half of a percent, Amazon down about three quarters of 1%. Let me take you to the VIX. If there is increased fear in the markets, you're not seeing it through the fear gauge. Uh, the volatility index at 13, just not telling you that there's fear. So even though we saw the market pull back, the VIX actually moved lower instead of going higher at this point. So it doesn't indicate any elevated uh, fear out there in the market or the gauge is certainly not tapping into it if that is the case. But over the course of the trading week, we're now down in contrast to last week. We're down about 1% so far on the Dow. And over the course of the trading week on the S&P 500, down by a similar amount, but it does mark potentially an end to a five-week winning streak if we wrap up on the back foot over the next couple of days. Let me take you to the Treasury markets as investors again eyeing what the potential is for rates. The bond market, the yield has stepped up 4.73 where we're perched at the short end, so investors are no doubt very closely watching this trade. To the dollar, as we see that yield support coming back into the Treasury market, 
it uh, has meant that uh, sterling is on the back foot but if you think about just how hawkish the language has been on this side of the world on bank of england day as we get set up for another rate hike from the central bank and perhaps uh, not just 25 basis points after that very hot inflation number that we saw across the tape while 127.53 perhaps we've moved uh, a fair distance in a short period of time but dollar has it this morning a euro though uh, firming up versus uh, the greenback at this point so a little bit choppy on these trades dollar just giving back a little bit of territory versus the Japanese yen. To some of the big commodity trades, WTI Brent this morning, both are weaker with 76.71 on Brent and around the 72 handle on WTI. Gold price is the safe haven bid, just fading an element too. So uh, we're not getting a, a true risk-off sweep at this stage. We're getting a slightly choppy picture, I think, at this, this point. I want to take you to the Asian markets that are giving us a glimpse of how the session is playing out so far in that region. We are down heavily in Australia, 1.6% down. South Korea staging a modest uh, upbeat uh, move today, four tenths of a percent, just in the green for the Nifty 50. And uh, stocks in Japan actually moving into the red. And don't forget uh, the Chinese and Hong Kong markets out of action today for Dragon Boat Festival. So we're only getting a, a number of the uh, stocks in the region trading at this point. What a lot you just showed, including I thought that VIX number is quite extraordinary as well. I thought um, that would capture your attention. You love the VIX. I, I love it as an indicator of events after the event, i.e. when it rallies aggressively, oh, it's a fear index, it's a fear index. It's not really, is it? Because as, as we quite rightly see it, uh, well, no, we'll come to this later because I've got a big chat for you. Uh, I know we want to move on, but I have got lots to say about it as well, um, as ever. Uh, markets are now pricing in a 72% chance of a 25 basis point hike from the Fed at its uh, July meeting. That is down from 77% the day before Powell spoke. The Fed Fund's futures have swung wildly and sit sharply higher than a month ago, when markets were pricing in only a 19% chance of a quarter point hike. Right, let's get to the Bank of England, where a rate hike is all but baked in at today's Bank of England decision, with the Governor Andrew Bailey under pressure from all sides after Wednesday's CPI print. A surprise to the upside core inflation rose to its highest level in more than three decades. Traders upped their bets on the possibility of a 50 basis point hike with a 6% base rate almost a certainty by the end of the year. This according to the money markets, of course, uh, up from 4.5% today. Meanwhile, the UK government debt hit more than 100% of GDP for the first time since 1961. Harold Macmillan. I think it was, was it Harold McMillan. I think it was Harold McMillan. Let's work it out. So you had you had Churchill from '55, right. and then you had Lord Avon. I think it was Anthony Eden. Then it was McMillan, and then it was Alec Douglas Home. You had four Tory PM uh, in a row, and then it was Harold Wilson from the latter half of the decade. So you know, I'm just frantically googling. Now. No, don't worry. I know it. To be honest, <laughs> yeah. Uh, 1961. That was before the Beatles released their first single. They were still in the Hamburg Club by then. Another interesting historical reference. Uh, with short-term borrowing costs uh, stuck at 15-year highs. Let's look at the gilts. Uh, my goodness me, if you're a saver and you're nimble, there are some interesting deals becoming available at the moment. If you're a borrower, therein lies the problem. We'll come to that with Jemina in a moment. 5.039%, uh, the two-year paper. I think that's where the action is. Right, a quick look at the pound, which doesn't appear to be suffering from this crisis of confidence uh, in monetary powers. 127.54, not quite at its most recent highs. Right, Jemina joins us from the Bank of England. Jemina, what a fascinating situation at the moment. Um, 
Our viewers want to know many, many things. But one, is this a crisis partially of the making of the Bank of England? Uh, and two, why does it appear that British inflation is so much worse as an outlier than perhaps a lot of its G7 compatriots? Both very salient questions, Steve. Uh, you know, I've been standing outside the Bank of England for many years now, and I would say this is number one, probably the most highly charged Bank of England meeting that I've attended, and number two, also the most split in terms of market expectations. It's been a very long time we've gone into one of these meetings with the interest rate markets not really knowing whether the bank is going to go for a 25 or a 50. Today we're sitting at, at, at around a 50% probability of either one of those options happening. Let me just start off by tackling your question about inflation because we got here essentially because of these very high inflation prints. Yesterday, no exception. The May inflation print coming in at 8.7%. This is the fourth upward surprise in a row. Other countries around the world are beginning to experience a deceleration in inflation. It's not really happening over here. And the reason, uh, well, one actually more alarming phenomenon, and I want to pick up on something that you and Karen were talking about, is even if you strip out the volatile components of food and energy, we know that food inflation is sitting at north of 18% over here. Even if you strip those out, we're still looking at core inflation of 7.1%. This is the highest level it's been since 1992. It's moved up from 6% at the beginning of March to 7.1% now. This is very problematic because it tells you that even if you strip out all the volatile components, the domestic inflationary pressure is very, very strong. Services inflation is very strong. And one of the reasons that's the case is because service industries tend to be more reliant on labor. We know that also wage costs are going up. And so therein lies this wage price spiral. And that is a big problem for the central bank. Then comes in the question of credibility. If the central bank do see that these domestic inflationary pressures are beginning to stay a little bit more sticky than they had anticipated, why are they therefore not acting more forcefully in the face of it? And that is the question from the market, it is the question from the public, a question from politicians, in that why have the Bank of England taken so long to get a grip on inflation and would we be sitting and staring at lower inflation levels had they acted more forcefully? Remember, the Bank of England were actually the first major central bank to start hiking in December 2021, but they were very slow with the increments. They kept going in small, small clips of 25 basis points at a time. And here we are today, still at 8.7% inflation levels. And so there is somewhat of a credibility crisis going on because many people out there are saying the Bank of England's communication style has been uh, questionable over the last year. There have been a very high-profile gaffes from both the uh, governor himself and other members of the committee. Their forecasting uh, is coming under question as well, and even the bank themselves have said that they're looking to do a, a whole review of their whole forecasting process. And the trust in the Bank of England in bringing and, and actually being successful at bringing inflation back down again is at an all-time low. Add to that the fact that interest rates now are pricing in a peak to a terminal rate of six percentage points. You've got seven million people in mortgages in this country. One and a half million of those mortgages are going to be refinanced in the next year. That indicates more than £2,000 a month uh, that people will have to pay an extra, an extra mortgage cost. This is going to be a problem. And so the, the, the trade-off for the Bank of England here is they have to deal with inflation, but the costs are getting higher and higher as the days tick by. And ultimately, there is going to be a cost for the economy, and we will see it in the coming months.
Absolutely super. And of course, those, those mortgage resettings that we're all referring to, absolutely fact. We'll, we'll come back to you a little bit later on because there's plenty more I want to ask you about, Jumana. But thank you. Excellent. Uh, as ever. Right. OK, that is not the only central bank action we've got lined up for you today. We'll bring you the SMB's latest decision. That's coming at 9.30 Central European time. The Norge Bank at 10 CET. Karen. More effective options are required to stabilise, recover or wind down systemically important banks in the event of a crisis, according to the Swiss National Bank's latest financial stability report. And these reports get more and more interesting, I think, these days, particularly on the back of a crisis, right? The SNB has said it is crucially important to learn from the failure of Credit Suisse and to take measures to restore confidence where possible. The report added that the 81 features designed for early loss absorption were not effective and the banks should be required to prepare a minimum amount of assets going forward that can be pledged to central banks. The SNB says it has been unable to perform a full stress test on the combined bank yet, so just to peel away from that lingo, so they're talking about the cocos here that have been uh, in uh, uh, some controversy, basically, because of where they've been treated in the, in the lineup. I make two tiny points on this. One... Um, every other central bank has said our 81s will be honoured and will not be treated in the same way uh, as the SMB is treating it. And two, if we're talking about more capital being deposited at the SMB, we're only talking about one systemically important bank left in Switzerland, which is UBS Credit Suisse. Uh, I presume just called UBS from now on as well. So, so does that mean that UBS's ability to uh, compete on a global basis will be crimped by the amount of capital it's got to hold with the SMB? Well, potentially. I mean, obviously, if you're locking up more capital, there's less to lend out to the economy. For me, the bigger issue is that if AT1s don't work, do we need more financial innovation? I mean, that's an interesting one. They were created as a tool uh, to provide some form of uh, extra liquidity, right? And if they don't work, then what's the answer? Anyway, coming up on the show, world leaders gather in Paris aiming to overhaul the global financial system. As the UN argues, it's not fit to handle today's challenges. We'll tell you more after the break. Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on CNBC.com. Dozens of people are injured and two are still missing under rubble after an explosion in central Paris yesterday afternoon. The blast ripped through Rue Saint-Jacques, one of the roads running from Notre Dame. Authorities are yet to determine the exact cause of the blast, although the local mayor pointed to a gas explosion. Global leaders are gathering in Paris with France calling for the adoption of a new global financial pact. More than 300 delegates, including heads of state, will attend the two-day summit hosted by President Macron. He's seeking to lay the groundwork for a renewed financial system better suited to the challenges of the 21st century. Let's get out to Arabile for more in Paris. Arabile, that sounds uh, like a fairly noble um, goal that they're striving for. But what we're really talking about here, isn't this just more soft power for Emmanuel Macron? 
Yeah, most likely, right? It certainly could be more soft power for President Emmanuel Macron. I mean, two years ago, he actually gathered African leaders as well for an African finance summit right here in Paris as well to try and garner up support for a $100 billion fund, which was aimed at helping uh, emerging market economies, low-income nations as well, who was perhaps struggling with their debt as well. That was, of course, financed by the likes of the IMF, the UN, uh, the World Bank, all of those, even the G20, all involved even uh, in this summit as well. So they're all trying to gather up this conversation where they'll perhaps try to help and restructure the debt of the lower income nations who have been struggling on the basis, of course, also of the rising interest rates that we've seen across the world. All of that has been factored into this play and has meant that a lot of the emerging market economies have struggled to then develop and grow their economies and then also follow on to the climate change goals which are needed and the one trillion dollars that the emerging market sort of needs to kind of show up for the climate change conversation has been difficult for all of them to gather too so this summit is aimed at trying to put that together so there are at least 50 state leaders here uh, including the likes of Mohammed bin Salman from Saudi Arabia you have uh, Nana Okofu as well from Ghana including President Cyril Ramaphosa from South Africa as well as Mia Motley from Barbados the Prime Minister of Barbados who actually led the delegation really interested in trying to restructure the debt conversation as well for the emerging market nations, the low-income countries. Uh, and that has been quite significant uh, to put forward to all those leaders, including Chinese Prime Minister uh, Li Jiang, who is actually on his first visit uh, since being uh, put in part. Uh, of that leadership structure in China then. This is his first international trip. So all of that does put some credence and importance on uh, a summit like this. The conversations are going to be very important, even those of Janet Yellen, who is anticipated to actually have a press conference before uh, the summit actually begins, and even offer up quite a few words with regards to how exactly they can help and ensure that the lower income and emerging market economies are able to not struggle under the weight of all the debt they've had to accumulate because of COVID-19 and the like. So all of those factors will certainly be on the agenda. And it is a two-day summit that is aimed at ensuring that the low-income countries find a roadmap to restructuring their debt and also helping with the climate change goals. Superb. Thank you very much indeed. I'm uh, very jealous you're in the uh, lovely Paris. Oh, it is raining there and it is glorious in London. So uh, there's a reversal. OK, ha have a look at this. Have a look at this. Look at this. The right hand side of this screen. It's got to be uh, one of the charts of the day. Um, look at the rally of what has been a quite a boring range. Let's be brutally honest about it. It's stuck around 25, 26,000 on Bitcoin. It has absolutely surged. Let me fill you in some details. Bitcoin has topped $30,000 for the first time since April, boosted by demand from major investors. This as new digital asset platform EDX Markets, which is backed by Wall Street giants, including Citadel Securities and Charles Schwab, began trading earlier this week. The surge in cryptocurrencies follows, I think it's fair to say, a rough a few months for the digital coins, caused in part by the SEC crackdown on major exchange operators, Binance and Coinbase. It does make you wonder whether there had been issues with the plumbing after all these uh, problems with some of the exchanges. The fact that you get a pop on a day like yesterday when tech came off, it should have been actually really the opposite. You see that tech and Bitcoin often track together. The yeah. days where it's risk on, you look at the Fed and you think, well, the Fed's not going to be moving on rates. It's going to be cutting later this year. That is a great window for Bitcoin. Wasn't the window yesterday as we heard that there's still more work to do, yet Bitcoin still went up, right? If you look at that journey.
I'll just say very briefly, in anything, whether it's a, a pounds note, we don't even have pound notes anymore, whatever it is, it's about trust in the commodity you are trading with, trust in the, the piece of paper you're handing over and take it back. And let's be honest about it, there has been a trust deficit amongst many mainstream investors uh, towards the participants yeah. and the purveyors of Bitcoin product. There is no doubt about it, whether it's accurate or not, there is a trust deficit. If you get established players backing the product, then some of that trust deficit will erode. Well, it's and a that's, different I think, what tone we've on seeing. return of capital, right? You think return of capital on the investment that you're actually in. It's getting in and out of the investment where some of those issues have been felt. And meanwhile, the EU Competition Commissioner, Margrethe Vestager, has told CNBC that authorities should not rush to regulate AI unless something, quote, fundamental is at stake. Vestager told our US colleagues that regulators should instead urge companies to exert voluntary control over the new technology. The most important strategic choice is not to regulate technology as such, uh, but to regulate the use of technology and only to regulate when something fundamental is at stake. What we are pushing uh, with the US and with other global partners is a voluntary code of conduct when it comes to generative AI because the potential is so enormous. And it would be great if businesses felt that they could safely use generative uh, AI. The US Federal Trade Commission has accused Amazon of tricking customers into signing up for a Prime subscription. In a lawsuit, the country's consumer rights watchdog said the e-commerce giant made, quote, manipulative web designs to push customers into signing up for Prime and then have their subscriptions automatically renewed. The FTC also alleged that Amazon made it difficult to cancel the paid subscription. Amazon called the accusations false, adding that it made it clear and simple for customers to sign up and cancel their memberships at uh, stake here. Apparently, uh, two clicks, one click, two clicks to sign up. Four-page, six-click, 15-option cancellation process known as the Iliad flow to try and get out of some of the subscriptions. Um, old as the hills, dare I say, you know, um, have this free subscription offer for a while, have this for a bit. In fact, I think yesterday I had in the post, uh, I think I actually had something from Amazon yesterday in the post saying four months free Amazon Music um, if you take up this offer as well and people forget to cancel their subscriptions. I mean, I don't know the details of this one. In, I haven't gone into the FTC, FTC complaints, mm -hmm. but I mean, it's as old as the hills. It just happens to be that Amazon is a bigger company than others. A bit too clever for their own good in some ways, but I, I like the fact that the regulators take an issue with the overall subscription. In the website, for anyone who's ever used the platform, you know you also get served up with subscription options on right. products. So not just cancelling the overall subscription, cancelling the products that are turning up on a regular basis if it's unnecessary as well. I mean, it just gets more and more complex. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.